Father, we hear your word this morning, and we long to submit to its principles. We know that you are the all-wise God, and that we, like Moses, cannot do the task you've given us alone. So please equip Cambrian Park Baptist Church with wise counselors, and not only that, but also give us willing workers. We want our heart and our desire and our motivation to be yours, God. We want to be doing your tasks that you've put us on earth to do. So I pray that as we hear the word today, you would give us soft hearts. I pray that your spirit would convict us and would encourage us as you see fit. And that, God, you would be glorified and we would be in awe of you this morning as your word is heralded from this pulpit. May I decrease and may you increase in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. So glad to be with you this morning, and always a pleasure to bring the Word of God before you. It's a lar- rather a large chunk, as you heard Bill reading, so um, I applaud you if you kept uh, focused in and you, you were able to keep it, hold your attention for the whole passage. There's a lot going on in Exodus 18. It's rather juicy, but I hope to distill it down to a few very clear points so that you can walk away knowing what your task is and how you can accomplish it with God's help. We heard last week from Kirk's sermon in Exodus 17 that Moses would only succeed with friend-supported faith. If you remember, the Amalekites came to Israel to attack them, to berate them, to, to try to kill them. Well, we have a very similar main point today. We also see that we need friend-supported, community-supported faith as well if we are to succeed. But instead of a foreign enemy, the Amalekites, coming to visit Israel, this morning we have a foreign friend coming to visit Israel, a Midianite, specifically Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So last week, Kirk left you with a, a challenge. He said that you cannot do it alone. We saw that Moses couldn't hold his hand up by himself. He needed Aaron and her. So he said, before you leave today, name the friends in your life that will help you in your faith, that will speak truth into your life, and that will help you to not fail and fall short of the glory of God, but succeed in life, knowing that you were made for community. I pray that you took him up on that challenge last week, but if you didn't, this is your second shot at it. We have a little bit more developed this week of how those friendships should look, and our great need for counselors and those who we can disciple. As you read this passage, I think the big problem probably jumped off the page at you. As you could read in verse 18, it says, You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. How many of you have felt like that before? Raise your hand if you've ever felt worn out or the task that is in front of you is too heavy for you to, to accomplish. I think I see all the hands. You are not human if you've never felt this way. Um, this life is, is hard at times, and we live in a fallen world. This is a very familiar dilemma with us. The good news this morning is that God cares for you, and he has not left you to be weary and burdened and burnt out, but instead he comes to us each this morning with a word of hope and joy and freedom. The sermon is titled, Burnout or Disciple, because we really have no other option. As Christians, as those who said, I will live my life underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, we have, we have two options ahead of us, just as Moses had two that Jethro put before him. Either burn out, 
feel the heaviness of the task that we're given, or make disciples to share the load. The simple yet profound advice we hear in Exodus 18 has not only practically shaped the way that Israel took court cases, the way that our own nation does court cases and and establishes its hierarchy of judicial system, but it is also, this passage tells us how we might have peace as we each play a significant role in God's big plan. You know what that plan is? To save the world. This passage not only tells us how to set up a judicial system, but tells each one of you how you can have peace as you play your significant role in God's big plan to save the world. The big point, the main point I want you to hear this morning from this passage is that because your God-given commission, your task is too heavy for you to do alone, you must, you must have God-appointed advisors and you must make God-fearing disciples. It's without a question, you heard the Great Commission from the Sin and Confession reading, you know as a Christian that your commission is been given by God. So you have a God-appointed commission. It's too heavy for you to, to do alone. So you must have God-appointed advisors and make God-fearing dis- disciples. We will follow the order of Exodus 18, starting with what it looks like to have God-appointed advisors in our lives. Just as Jethro was a God-appointed advisor to Moses, we must seek advisors as well, who God in his providence has equipped and appointed to help us too. Look with me at verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. Jethro was not only Moses' father-in-law, but he was also a priest of Midian. If you remember back in Exodus, Midian was the place in the wilderness that Moses fled to after he had murdered a man. It was the place he escaped, and he met his wife, Zipporah. So there in Midian... He had met Jethro, and he had met his daughter, Zipporah, and it was God's providence that brought the two together. We hear that after all, after he got married, obviously, and it was with Zipporah those 40 years, being tested and trained in the wilderness, God sent him back on the great mission that we know very well to, to deliver his people, to bring them through the Red Sea. Now, all these things took place, and Jethro stayed in Midian. But just as God had predicted, the news of the Exodus would resonate throughout the entire world, and through the grapevine, it got to Jethro's ears in Midian. And so, as, as Moses and his people are marching through the wilderness, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, Jethro says, I want to come and visit my son-in-law. I want to come and see how he's doing, and to hear a firsthand account of what God has done. As was customary, you see in the text, great Middle Eastern hospitality, Moses bowed down before his father-in-law, and he kissed him, and he welcomed him into his tent. Moses told Jethro everything that had happened from his perspective, and look with me at verses 9 through 11. Look at Jethro's response to what had happened. First, it says, he rejoiced for what the Lord, Yahweh, had done, and he said, blessed be the Lord for what he has done. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Hold up. Wait a second. I want you to consider how extraordinary and surprising Jethro's reaction is. Remember that he was not already a Yahweh worshiper, but he was the priest of Midian. It was his life 
work to draw the whole nation of Midian to false gods, to a polytheistic religion, to offer sacrifices to gods other than Yahweh. So for this leader, this priest of Midian, to hear the news from afar and then come close and hear the story again from Moses' own lips, for him to not only say, that's great, I'll just add this God to my tool belt for him to say, this God is greater than all gods. This is an extraordinary statement. Some of you this morning have unbelieving father-in-laws that you know in your life. And you might say, wow, I can think of my father-in-law right now and how amazing would it be if my father-in-law came to know Jesus Christ? How amazing would it be if my own father-in-law made the same profession that Jethro made, that Yahweh, that, that Jesus Christ is greater than all gods? Many of us would, would fall on our faces and we would cry and we would rejoice at the salvation of our fa- own father-in-laws. We have to realize that the same reaction that we would have to our own kin, Moses would have had when he heard that Jethro put his entire life at stake He put his status, his paycheck, his livelihood on the line when he confessed that this God of Israel was greater than any of the gods of Midian. Notice that Jethro in verse 12 didn't even keep his faith private either. He wasn't trying to smuggle in a little Yahweh worship and keep his his status and the the bread and butter going in Midian, but instead he made a public declaration in verse 12. He knew that as a sinner that he deserved death. And so far before the cross and far before the Levitical laws, we see that deep down he knew that he deserved death. And therefore, he brought a sacrifice before God to symbolically substitute his own life, which he knew should have been put to death. Then he proceeded to have a covenant meal before God and Aaron and the elders so that he wouldn't only privately say, oh, I'm a secret God worshiper, but he would publicly come out and say that I am now agreeing with you, Aaron, and your God, so that everyone might know that I am now a worshiper of the one true God. This is what Jethro did. He made his private faith public. Now, it's easy for us to see how in this confession and when what he did after that finds its natural New Testament application in the public worship of God in the symbolizing our faith publicly through baptism, through Lord's Supper, and through eating a meal with our elders too. What we do when we take the Lord's table and whenever we become members, we, when we're baptized, we come out, we, we, we get public with our faith and say it's not just about me and my personal religion, but I am calling upon the community knowing that I, God is a communal God and he wants me to be a worshiper of, her, worshiper of him in public. And so we see an obvious application for us here. Jethro's experience as a priest his whole life, his timely visitation, and his faithful response to God make him the perfect advisor for Moses here in this passage. He watched Moses struggle and fail to administer his workload. We hear the next day that that Moses allowed him to sit and watch him as he judged the people. And just as Aaron and Hur helped Moses uphold his hands last week, this week Jethro is coming to the rescue to see Moses. Just the same way that you would have worn yourself out trying to hold up your hand, you're going to wear yourself out trying to judge your people from morning till evening. There was a backlog of cases, saints, 
that they wouldn't have a lot of, had a lot of time to litigate when they were fleeing from Pharaoh and then when they were just getting across the Red Sea. And so there was a backlog of cases. And as Pastor Keith alluded to, many of the commentators say there's, there's likely around 2.4 million people in Israel. And so imagine the backlog that would have been on Moses' plate. And so Jethro says, I need to come and I need to help you. So in observing here, uh, look, at, look at Jethro's analysis and his advice in verses 17 through 19. He says, what you are doing is not good. You and the people, you will, will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. I want you to observe these essential characteristics that Jethro had as a great advisor to Moses. And as you consider these things, I want you to ask personally, who are the advisors in my life? And ask, do they bear these same attributes as Jethro did to Moses? Do I have advisors and how does their character stack up with Jethro's? So the first principle we take away from Jethro's advisory role to Moses is that he was providentially appointed. So it wasn't an accident that, that when Moses fled Israel, that he would come, apro- come across Zipporah. God orchestrated that in his providence, knowing that Jethro was her, her father, and knowing that Jethro would be an integral part in the peace of the nation later on. That God, in his, in his divine wisdom, knew eventually that he would convert Jethro, and that Jethro would visit Moses at the perfect time in Israel's history. So this is not a coincidence at all that Jethro is coming. It's the same for us, brothers and sisters, that just the same way that God providentially appointed Jethro, God has providentially appointed advisors to be in your life as well. Only Jesus is your perfect counselor, but we must trust that God has provided the people in our lives that we are to learn from as well. In an age of online resources, where it's easy to surround ourselves with yes-men and people who will give us the exact advice we think we need at any particular time, in this age where we think it's very easy to find advisors, God reminds us this morning that he's surrounded you with a local church. He's surrounded you with people to know your life and to help counsel you and equip you to live out your God-given commission as well. Now, we mustn't have in some unrealistic expectation that any one person can tell us everything we need to hear. But we also have to be content with our local church, knowing that the people God has put in this building, in this covenant community, are the people he wants to put in our lives to be our advisors as well. It's folly to think If only I could find the perfect church with dozens of godly retired saints just waiting to be my mentor. Just all these old seasoned professors who just want to pour into me. If I found that perfect church with all these godly advisors, then I would finally flourish. Saints, that's folly to think that way. Your best counselors are right under your nose. Literally, look around you right now in this room and you can see the providentially appointed counselors God has given you. You just have to ask, and you have to look as well. Now, a great place to start is with your pastors, your God-appointed counselors and advisors who God has put over you to love you and to shepherd you and has, has said, I hold you to a higher set of accountability to, to love and watch over and advise the people. 
So if you don't know where to start, or if you say, I don't have a counselor, or I don't know someone in my church who could give me advice and help me with my life's purpose and direction, well, one easy thing is to look to the, the men that God has placed over you, your shepherds who love you and want to know you and be in your life and give you biblical counsel. So if you say there aren't any counselors, then that is a false statement. Now, we should use YouTube for counsel for small tasks. If you want to learn how to cook a steak a proper way or fix a sink, you can find those advisors on YouTube, and that is a common grace of God you should be using. But for life's purpose and direction and for you to fulfill the commission God has given you, you can't, it's easy to go to YouTube to find yes men, but you need people who actually know you, who know your faults, who know your proclivities, and want the best for you in your life. People that you've let into your home, that you've let to see your priorities. You need people who know you to steer you in the right direction, to help advise you in your life. Secondly, we don't, we don't only learn from Jethro that God has put providentially appointed counselors in our midst but he also wants us to seek out counselors who are trustworthy and loving like Jethro. Notice that Jethro's character and profession make him the perfect counselor. He is so trustworthy. How trustworthy? Well, Moses trusted his wife and his children underneath Jethro's care. I've often heard the way you find good counselors is if you were to die, are they men or women of, of such trustworthy status that you would entrust your family to, to take care of if you were to die? That is a, a good question to ask when you're looking not only for pastors, but for mentors in your life. Would you entrust them with your own family as Moses did to Jethro? Also, are they loving like Jethro? Jethro sat down with Moses. He listened to Moses. He didn't get jealous when Moses told him about the greatness of his God, saying, oh, well, look at my little gods. No, he rejoiced with Moses. And he said, I love you enough that I want to not only hear the good news that you have to say, I want to be a good listener, but I also want to love you enough to provide correction where I see you need it as well. We need these counselors as well. We need men and women to speak into our lives to help us to see where we fall short too. When Moses, when we like Moses feel heavy and burdened and like we can't go forward, we need people to say, you know, it's actually not just just those outside circumstances that are making life feel heavy right now. It's actually your own sin and your lack of rightly putting God first that's adding this unnecessary weight of heaviness onto your life. We need those people to remove, not, not only help us strategize, but help to put the mirror in front of our face from time to time as well. For our long-term spiritual success, this is not an option, brothers and sisters. So whether you have a counselor or not is good, but the better question, and the question I sent out in an email this week, is you must not only have them, but you must intentionally and frequently let these counselors into your life to say, where do you see me succeeding? Where do you see me failing? Please speak into my life. I give you permission to do this. 1 Peter 5.5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's be honest. The reason we don't do this is because we're proud. It takes great humility 
to ask anyone to speak into our lives and to be willing to say, I love Christ and his mission more than I love my own pattern of life and set ways. I'm, I have the humility to let someone into the sensitive parts of my life to be able to speak into it and correct me if need be. What are the consequences if we don't? Later on in 1 Peter 5, we hear the consequences. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The consequences, if Moses didn't heed Jethro's counsel, is he would have been crushed under the weight of all these judicial cases. Israel would not have thrived. What are the consequences if you don't have godly counselors in your life, willing to not just tell you what you want to hear, but to speak biblical truth? You will be the first and easiest target for Satan as he sees you straggling and wandering outside the pack. He prowls around like a lion, and he will pick you off if you don't have, if you're not staying close to the fold, and you have people speaking truth into your life, helping protect you against Satan's wiles. It's easy to fly solo. It's hard but necessary to find godly advisors. So, just as Kirk challenged you last week, have some names in mind. And again, you're not looking for one guru to, to perfectly know all of your needs and to help you with everything in life. But we need people who know the word of God and that we let in. Amen? Amen. An example of this that came to mind for me was recently, I was thinking about my commission, about my, my tasks of what I wanted to do. And rather, just say, rather than just saying, okay, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do with my life and my ministry, um, I, I laid out all of the options before Pastor Keith. And I said, Pastor, here are some of these outreach opportunities I have. Here's how I divide up my week and how I spend my time. How should I prioritize my commission? How should I go about this work? What do you think is most important for me to do? And knowing that Pastor Keith is trustworthy and that he loves me and he wants the best not only for me but for the glory of God, he gave me counsel on which outreach activities to, to prioritize and to be involved in. Now without that, I may have just gone and done my own thing. But it was so important and essential for me to say, no, I, I'm not wise myself. I need to lay my life's goals and purposes before another brother who is trustworthy. Another illustration is... The question, do we seek counselors before or after we've set our heart on something? Do we seek godly counselors before we make a decision? To say, I want people early on in the big decision process to help me sort out all the details, to come along and pray for me. We've had people oftentimes make, make big decisions in their lives where they've already made up their mind and it makes counsel really hard. And so, saints, I want to encourage you to, to be humble, to be soft-hearted, and to bring counselors in early. Now, while it's true that we can have these counselors and they can provide a big help, we have to have them counsel, not just in the areas that we ask them to, but we have to let them in to our commission. We have to help them see what has, what has God equipped me and gifted me to do? What gifts do I have, and how should I practice them? Notice that Jethro specifically counseled Moses in his God-given commission. He didn't tell Moses a bunch of other superfluous things. He didn't tell him how to raise his, his grandchildren. He didn't tell Moses um, how he was to relate to Aaron. But he gave counsel specifically to his task. And so we have to ask, okay, if I have counselors, 
first of all, what is my task in the first place? What does God want me to do? And what types of things should my counselors be speaking into? So our second point today is your God-given commission. Just as it was Moses' commission from God to administer justice to Israel, we have been commissioned to make disciples of all nations, bringing God's justice to the world. Moses was to bring justice to Israel. We are called on the Great Commission to bring God's justice to the whole world. So after Moses tried doing his job, and as we see in 14, was people were standing around till evening, he was failing at it. Verse 16 tells us that when people had a dispute, they wanted to know what God's law had said. And then Moses, or Jethro, came along and said, this arrangement isn't working. Now, it would have been natural at that time to see Moses as the mediator between God and men. So these people wanted to know, what does God have to say about this dispute? And so logically and naturally, they would have come to Moses. Not only that, but Moses would have been acquainted with with the ways of Pharaoh, and he would have grown up in Pharaoh's courts, seen how Pharaoh handled things. And so he would have naturally been inclined to do it himself. So Jethro comes along, and he reminds Moses of his great commission, his great task. Look at verses 19 through 20 with me. He says, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Now, while this would have been nothing new to Moses, it was important for him to remember and to consider again the weightiness of his task. That he's truly bringing these cases before the living and holy God. Listen to the three aspects of this commission Moses has given. First, represent the people. Second, bring their cases before God. And third, warn them about the law. And how he warns both hits the mind, teach them to know the way intellectually, and he also says, teach them to do these things, to walk in the ways as well with their actions. Represent, bring, and warn. Now, before you think that the only practical application about this is if you happen to be a judge in a courtroom, let me remind you that there is far more reach and application to this. Where have you heard a commission like this before? Think about your knowledge of scripture. Where have you heard these three components before? Well, I'll tell you. If you lay Exodus 18, 19 through 20 down on a piece of paper, right on top of Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, the Great Commission, I think you'll find striking parallels between Moses' task and ours. I'll go ahead and read Matthew 28, 18 through 20 to you so it's fresh in your mind. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here are the parallels. First, where Moses is called to represent Israel to God, we are called to represent Christ to the world. All authority is Christ's, but he says, you people in my image, you go. So first, we are called to represent Christ to the world. Second parallel, whereas Moses is called to bring cases before God, we are to bring converts before God, bringing people, disciples to him, and baptize them them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
So we are to bring people before the Lord, those who we've been sent out to preach the gospel to, who God will save, and we're to bring them as an offering to the Lord to present them before God. And the third parallel, that whereas Moses was called to warn Israel about God's law so that they might know it in their mind and do it with their actions, we are commissioned to teach the word, the world about all that Christ has commanded so that they may not only learn but obey, learn to observe or obey the law of Christ. And so just as Moses' task is to dispense and teach the law for knowledge and obedience, the exact same commission is given to us as well, saints. So Moses was called to dispense justice to Israel, and we are to do it to the world. That is your commission. That, I hope, will, will look different in each of your lives But I pray and I hope that that is uh, an undergirding current in your life that informs and directs all that you do and prioritize in your life, that that is your great commission. Now, the people wanted to hear from Moses because he was God's representative. Brothers and sisters, if you are a true disciple of Christ, then you, like Moses, have direct access to God's statutes and laws as well. 2 Peter 1.19 says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Because we have the Bible in our hands, saints, we are not to the same stature as Moses, but as, as, the, as Peter reminds us, that we have an even more sure word that has been fully confirmed. Whereas Moses, the, while the law, the law had not been published yet, it will in a few chapters from now, we have the law comper, perfe, perfectly and completely published before us so that we might know clearly what God's will is and adjudicate between right and wrong in all circumstances. That God's word is sufficient for all life and godliness. So our task is more than judging between right and wrong, but it is telling a world full of sinners that are on trial how they can be forgiven and reconciled to God through the cross. So, so Moses is, is adjudicating between disputes. What's the dispute we have in front of us? The dispute is that the world hates God and they're his enemies, and they will one day stand in trial against him. Now our job, rather than than adjudicating between God and men, we are to tell men that they are already guilty, but they don't have to stay that way, that they can have peace and reconciliation and forgiveness to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jethro's testimony of salvation gives us an example that God is in the business of saving the most unlikely people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We have a hint of the Great Commission, even here in our passage, that the salvation of God is spreading beyond Israel, and it's even going to a Midianite, the Midianite priest. And so we have this little hint here. How much more so now that Christ is victorious and Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations, do we have the full offensive command to go to the nations and declare the gospel, knowing that God will not just save Midianites, but he'll save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? We have a great commission, brothers and sisters, that we ought to be about. How well are you doing in this commission? How faithful are you to do your small but significant part in talking to family members, friends, and strangers about the gospel? Do you truly believe that everyone in the world will be held accountable to God's law 
And therefore, it is your commission to warn people, just as Moses did, about God's law to which they must give an account. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is your commission? That everyone has a date in court that has been set between them and God. And it is your commission to not only tell them the good news of Christ, but to also warn them about their current state against a holy God. This can feel like an intimidating task for many. And I was there too. Whether our problem is not knowing how to lovingly warn someone about their sin, whether our problem is not being confident and articulating the gospel clearly, if our problem is caring too much about our reputation, or simply being overwhelmed by the sheer amount of lost people around us, we must confess that we fail when we try to do the Great Commission alone. That this is a burden too much for any one of us to carry and to do alone. All of those things I mentioned are oftentimes the big reasons why we don't engage in this task at all. So we have to ask God, God, show me the ways, the excuses I make and the, the, things, the ways I fall short of fulfilling your Great Commission and realize that on our own we will fail, that this burden will be too heavy for us just as it was for Moses. Well, thankfully, God has put appointed advisors in your life that we can be greatly helped by and not do this commission alone. It is important to have people in our lives that we can not only learn from, that set an example for us in how to, how to evangelize and fulfill the Great Commission, but people that not only teach us, like Ray Comfort on YouTube or someone in person, but we also need people to hold us accountable, to actually know us in person and to say, how are, you, how are you doing in that? I watched you evangelize last time and you could have been a little harder or softer or said this thing differently. We not only need instruction, but we need accountability as well. And so thankfully, we are not left to bear this weight alone, just as Moses wasn't. He had a faithful advisor come and help him. A good example that came up uh, about this this week is that at the ISF welcome dinner, uh, Brandon was sitting at a table with a bunch of people that didn't want to talk at all. Um, he was asking them very politely about who they were and what their home country was like and what their majors were and just going through all of the, the, the general stuff and getting to know a brand new international student. And Brandon told me that he basically got crickets, that people were on their phones, people didn't want to talk. Um, when he asked about, are you religious or are there churches in your country? Um, people just stared at him and blinked their eyes. And so I was so encouraged to hear that Brandon said, well, if people aren't going to talk, then I will. Uh, and then he proceeded to say, okay, well, this is what I believe. And then he went and he proclaimed the whole gospel message to his entire table of international students. Now, what I can tell you about my brother Brandon is that he would not have always had the boldness to do this years ago when he started off on his journey of doing the Great Commission and evangelizing. That there was a time when um, he would not have had this boldness. But because of the many God-appointed counselors in his life, not only to help him learn how to evangelize, but men who he knows he's accountable to, to, to say, you know, I chickened out and I was, I was weak and, and timid in this circumstance, or I was courageous. Because he has these people that bolstered his faith and helped him to do this thing this last Thursday. Now, if I, I hear stories from you, I know many of you are active and faithful to evangelize as well. I'm, stir, I'm sure that these stories could multiply as well. But we realize that we cannot do this alone. Now, saints, assuming that we are all great evangelists, 
let's just assume that we are all on the Great Commission, that we're all seeing that it's our duty to dispense the law of God, to warn people and to tell them about the grace of Christ. There still remains the reality that if we do this, even as a church alone, that we will burn out. If we try to do it on our own, even if we have godly counselors, there is simply too many people to reach, and we don't have enough time. The great question for Moses in this passage is, how is one man going to judge the cases of a nation with a population of 2.4 million people? How is one man going to do that? That's the great dilemma we have set up here in Exodus 18. Our great dilemma, not only are we going to do the Great Commission and evangelize or not, but let's say we, we all do and we do it well. We still have the great dilemma of how, is, how are God's Christians on earth, how are we as a church going to not only save 2.4 million people, but how is God going to save people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation? How is God going to reconcile the world to himself through his remnant, through his Christians that he has here? The weight is too heavy. It is, not, it is too much for any one of us to bear alone. So the, this is the right question is, how can we take part in God's plan to, as, as it says in John three seventeen, to not condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Jesus Christ? How are we to take part in this over all ages and times? If you remember the main point from the beginning, you already know the answer. Because this God-given commission is too heavy for us alone, you must not only have God-appointed advisor, appointed advisors, but you must make God-fearing disciples. So this leads us to our final point. Your God-fearing disciples. Just as Jethro told Moses to choose God-fearing judges to divide up the labor, we must make God-fearing disciples who can extend the gospel's reach all around the world. We must make God-fearing disciples who can extend the gospel's reach all around the world. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Moses doesn't only remind, uh, Jethro doesn't only remind Moses of his job, but then here he tells him how he's to successfully judge these, this nation. He says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So while this judicial hierarchy might seem obvious to us, at the time, Moses thought, I need to be the sole mediator between God and men. It wasn't immediately obvious for him. And we have the ben benefit of living historically downstream from this monumentous occasion in history where we get the benefit of being born into an American court system or, or seeing how this judicial hierarchy is set up based on this example that God had given here in Exodus 18. Jethro saw that Moses would fail alone as sincere as he was. And as Jesus says in Luke 7:35, wisdom is proved right by her children. Jethro saw that the wisest way forward was for him to divide up the labor into clans, into tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands, for him to actually get this amount of work done. And because this solution actually worked 
and didn't violate any of God's moral norms, it must be concluded that God truly spoke through Jethro to Moses, that this was a God-appointed solution. Now, it wasn't just the division of labor that that was so essential, but I hope that you were listening to the qualification of these judges. The qualification of these men is just as essential as the division itself. First, Moses had to consider, was this man able? That means able is, does he have a sound mind? Is he filled with enough wisdom to discern between truth and lies and to dole out a just consequence? Are the men not only able, but are they God-fearing? Do they fear God above all? Do they put God's law above their personal preferences, above their own reputation, and above the opinions of others? Do they do the right thing when no one else is watching? This would have been a crucial trait. Do they fear the Lord? The third trait we see is the man must be trustworthy. So they had to count on these judges to, to, to do what they said they would do, to let their yes be yes, that they were trustworthy to pass down the judgment that was given to them from above, and that they would also hate a bribe. And you can imagine in this circumstance how tempting it would be to take a bribe and get really rich quickly to be a judge if you just took bribes from people. So this man should not only not take a bribe, but he should hate a bribe as well, which means that if anyone offers him a bribe, this man should be just enough to expose that person, and if he hears about his peer judges taking bribes as well, he should hate a bribe so much that he's willing to expose that sin as well because of the sake and integrity of the nation. The success of Israel remaining holy and just, reflecting Yahweh properly to the world, it depended on these men's character and their ability to not only have this character, but to judge at all times. If they didn't judge at all times, then what would happen is what we find here, a backlog of cases that would cause the sin to fester and pollute the nation. But brothers and sisters, if we want God to be glorified through the success of the Great Commission, then we, like Moses, must choose men and women who have these same qualifications to represent Christ to the world. We have to look for men and women of this like character to represent Christ to the world so that Christ's name is lifted up. And when people see the character, it adorns the gospel. It gives credibility to the word of our mouths as well. Consider this this example of gospel delegation in the New Testament. We heard this from the prayer of sin and confession. 2 Timothy 2.2 And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations of able, God-fearing, trustworthy men did you count in 2 Timothy 2.2? Paul gives the word to Timothy Timothy is to entrust it to faithful men who then are to teach others. So just in 2 Timothy 2.2, you have four generations of God-fearing men who are called to, to fulfill the Great Commission and to tell the world about Christ, to take the, the wisdom and revelation of God and to pass it along and to cause it to multiply and spread throughout the world. We know that this did successfully, that God saw to it that this message has indeed spread throughout the world. And God has 
saved many, not only throughout the Roman Empire, but as that message has spread throughout all of Europe, came across the sea to us in America, and has continued to be uh, broadcast across all nations and continents. We see that God is on the move, and this, this simple method of appointing men and multiplying them as mundane and, and as simple as this sounds, we see that it, it is indeed successful, and it will continue to be successful. We have a promise of this in Scripture. So if you hear 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, and you say, well, Kurt, you know, this sounds great, um, but I, I, don't know, I don't know if I have enough people in my life that I could actually speak into. If you put this sort of qualification up, then... Uh, then it's going to be hard for me to, to find men and women like this. And then even at that, let's say I do disciple them, what are the chances that they will continue in the faith and that they will be taught and that they will continue to promote that message? Well, let me tell you that you cannot do anything on your own. That you cannot guarantee that this deposit of the faith is perfectly given to someone else and someone else will take it beyond you. But you know who does and can guarantee that this will happen? the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has already promised victory in the end. So even through our frail, feeble efforts to make disciples, God takes those. He takes our, our blemished sacrifice, and through the blood of his son, he cleans it off, and he uses it. And he does things far more than that we could ask or think. He raises up the most unlikely men and women who use even the smallest comment of us or, or the most unlikely time we spent talking to someone about scripture and he disciples them. And that good news of the message goes out and it can di- indeed, over time, spread throughout all the world and save people from all nations. We are promised as much. So last week, Kirk rightly challenged us to name those friends who would help uphold our hands to guarantee that we would not spiritually fail. I want to piggyback again on that challenge and give you a second chance to do that. Name the people in your mind right now that you will seek out this week, people that you will seek out to do spiritual good to. It's only God's providence that we're also studying discipleship on Wednesday nights. We are equipped and we know what to do. We have the tools. Oftentimes, our failure is not in knowing what to do. It's in getting distracted by the things of this world, by, by saying, oh, I'm too busy, or, or I don't think this will actually work, or I'm struggling with my own relationship with God enough that I can't possibly pour into someone else. We looked at all those excuses in the discipling book a few weeks ago, and we know that none of them, are, none of them hold any water that God will be magnified and he will save people through his broken vessels, vessels like me and you. You have to think of discipling as all of life. Like I said in my group, it's not just getting coffee with one other person, but it's parents, how you raise your children, not raising them not to be consumers, but raising them to be little disciples. Husbands, loving your wives and washing them with the word, equipping your wives to be the best disciples possible. Your church acquaintances, people who you know and say hi to, it's making the most out of those relationships and being intentional about spiritual dialogue and doing them spiritual good by talking about the word. It's in these day-to-day activities that we have the chance to do this, to engage in this work of God saving the world. If your desire falters, if you see that 
that you, you're not doing this currently in your life, and that it's hard for you to take this sort of responsibility, then you're not alone. That oftentimes the church can grow discouraged or not see enough visible fruit and can back off from their fervor in discipling. And that's normal, but it is not an option for us. Just as we started out from the sermon, we have two options, saints, to either burn out or disciple. Now, there's a third option I'm not, I didn't mention because this was not up to Moses. Moses had these two options, but many people choose a third category, and that's not to burn out, but that's to check out. Many people in the American church today have not burned out or discipled, but they have simply checked out. They've said, I'm coming here to be fed spiritually, to be entertained, to have good child care, and I'm going to check out of this. Discipleship is for the paid professionals and not for me. That is not an option for us. We have a heavy task ahead of us, but it is not for us to bear alone. This morning, for the burned out, for the people, if you've been trying to minister and you haven't seen much fruit, for the overwhelmed, those who are struggling in your life right now with expectations at work or with other things, this morning, for the burned out, for the overwhelmed, for the fearful, those who this morning say, I, I'm fearful. I don't, I don't want to jeopardize this relationship. I have too much fear to bring the gospel to my neighbors. Or even the fourth category, to the convicted this morning. To, the, to, to us this morning, the burned out, overwhelmed, fearful, and convicted, I want you to consider this truth. That Christ willingly accepted his commission from God to bring justice and salvation, not only to Israel, but to the world. He was the better Moses, who perfectly mediated between God and man, and as truly God and truly man, he never sinned once. He was the perfect Moses. He was the perfect mediator between God and man, being the fairest, most competent judge of all, who came to bring light to the darkness, what happened to him? He was rejected by his own, and he was rejected by the world. Every single able and trustworthy disciple that Christ gathered around him, selected, hand-chose, and poured time into in his life, personally trained, they abandoned him on the cross. Not only that, but his one sure counselor, Jesus' Jethro, if you will, his true heavenly father even turned his face away from Christ on the cross. Jesus' disciples he made and his counselor, those to come to help him bear the heavy load, turned his face away, fled from Christ while he was on the cross. And Jesus, the judge, became the sin-bearing sacrifice to bear the heavy weight of God's justice for sinners like me and you. Jesus knew that we would fail. He knew that we would be too prideful to seek counselors. He knew that we would be too pridefully busy or distracted or fearful to make disciples. And he said, you know what? I will do it perfectly for you. And even though I was the most competent and successful, these men would flee and God would turn his face away. And I would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And so Jesus tasted our consequences, a heavy, burdened, fruitless life. He became sin for us, and he was crucified. He was put to death for our failure to disciple, for our failure to seek counselors, for our, for our failure to put, put forth God's justice in the world. He truly died for the sins of his people. 
the justice that we deserve for breaking God's law and shirking our commission, Jesus took upon himself and he died as the perfect sacrifice. But that's not the end of the story, brothers and sisters. Jesus rose victoriously and he ascended to the rightful seat of his Father in heaven. And today, Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, not only adjudicating his people as Moses did, but he's in the business of orchestrating and seeing to it as the master general that his plan is perfectly fulfilled and completed through frail, broken instruments like us. Jesus is making sure that the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and he's empowering us to do it when we don't have strength ourselves. He comes to the weary, to the heavy laden, and he sends his spirit to give us a renewed energy, to give us a renewed passion and a fervor for the things that are most important in life. Jesus says, have your counselors failed you? Have your disciples failed you? Well, I'm always with you, and I am sufficient. Don't give up, don't check out, don't burn out, but make disciples. That is what we must do, because he is worth it, He deserves glory, and that is what we've been put on this earth to do, church. There is no other option. So we must surround ourselves with counselors. We must do the practical things that he has called us to do to protect us from burnout. We need to repent of our self-sufficiency, repent of of our secrecy in life, or are not wanting to take the time to pour into others. And we need to turn faithfully to Christ and trust in him for salvation and to trust in him not only to be cleansed of our sin, but to be equipped to go and take that message of salvation back into the world, to be an agent of salvation. And even though it might seem small, knowing that it is part of God's big plan to save the world. What is the result of this? Well, look at verse 23 with me. If we do this, if we humbly submit to the word of God, look at the result. In verse 23, we read, after Moses chose proper men and divided up the work, if you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. The results is that Israel will dwell in peace. Now, while we will continue to have turmoil and sin and death in this world until Christ comes again, the result of the church, if we step up to this charge to be faithful in making disciples and choosing qualified men and pouring into others, then the result is peace as well. We will not only bring increased peace within our church and within the city as we make more disciples, but ultimately the peace of God will rest upon this earth as the new Jerusalem is brought down and God lives with us in shalom forever. God's justice will be exacted upon sinners. Will you be part of this plan of peace God has for the world? Will you take part? Will you confess your weakness and your inadequacies and your failure to do this just as Moses did? I pray you will this morning. I want to leave you with the last question. Will you burn out? Will you check out? Or will you disciple? Let's pray. Father, help us to never grow weary of hearing the Great Commission. Lord, unlike the laws of this world, unlike the demands of sin and the pleasures of this world that only burden us and feel heavy 
and like in other obligation and pressure, we know that simply obeying your commands brings a lightness and brings freedom and brings a great joy to us. And so just the same way that Moses' burden was relieved by the great counsel of Jethro, I pray that you would help us to see our commission. And rather than being burnt out by it and trying to bear it alone, I pray that you would bring to mind this moment advisors you want to speak your truth into our lives and the men and women you want us to pour into. May this take place both in a focused way and intentional relationships. And may this also take place in every arena in life. The way we play, the way we work, the way we raise our children, the way we're about to eat at lunch, may all this be part of your plan to make disciples. I cannot fathom the reality of the millions around the world right now that are dying in their sin because they have not heard the gospel. Forgive us for growing numb to the great task ahead of us. I pray that we would feel the burden of taking the gospel to the nations and that we would do our part in being faithful, knowing that you will win in the end. In Jesus' name.